1: Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I am excited for this, this exclusive special edition interview that we just did, but first I want to introduce the show's producer, Tony Palacio. How are you doing today?
0: Praise in God. I think our audience is really going to enjoy this.
1: Yes, this interview is amazing. I'm excited to get to it. This is with Dr. Craig Evans, who is the John Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University, and we discuss in this interview his new book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this very, very special edition. I'll explain to you why it's a very special edition to me personally, because of the guests we're going to be having on today. Because this guest is somebody that has I have benefit, benefited from for a number of years, since I was a brand new baby Christian, as well as Pastor Joe Schimmel, the director and president and founder of Good Fight Ministries. Uh, and I think when we get into a lot of the topics we're going to be discussing, I think you guys will be benefited by these things. I think you'll be stretched by some of the ideas as well, and hopefully they'll help to grow you. So before I get any too far down the weeds, I just want to introduce him. I want to give you guys a little bit of a sketch of who he is. Dr. Craig Evans is the John Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is the author and editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 television documentaries and news programs. As Evans states, Ultimately, what really counts in writing history is truth. And according to Evans, the earliest manuscripts show Jesus as our present-day Bibles do, as the Son of God and Messiah. And as he says, my purpose is to introduce readers to diverse and complex literature to look at the most important areas of debate and to look at the scholar use or misuse of materials. The book we're going to be discussing today is Jesus and the Manuscripts. In Jesus in the Manuscripts, Evans unpacks key issues such as how some manuscripts ended up in the canon while others did not, like the book of Thomas or book of Peter. He examines claims about Jesus' personal life and whether or not he was married or sexually involved and how the final books ultimately ended up in today's Bible. I got this book about a week ago, and I have two copies of it, one here for you guys to display and another one in the background because it's uh, written up with a lot of graphite because I like to use pencil when I'm learning through these books. But without any further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Craig Evans to the Good Fight Radio Show. Thank you so much, Dr. Evans.
2: Thank you. Good to be
1: with you. Well, I'm excited to get right into it, and, and these are important questions because I believe Christians need to understand where we stand on a lot, of the, a lot of the evidence. I think Christians need to understand where they stand concerning the reliability of Scripture. So I guess the best way to start is to simply ask you, how reliable are the ancient manuscripts, and can we trust the authenticity of the New Testament?
2: They are very reliable, and yes, we can trust them. And this is not a faith statement when I say this. It's not theology speaking. It's evidence speaking. We have thousands of manuscripts, hundreds that are very old, dozens that get back within 150 years or so of when the originals were written. That is a very strong manuscript record. A lot of people don't know that. But uh, we have all kinds of documents from antiquity, in Greek and in Latin, that uh, scholars and historians trust. And in some cases, we only have four or five manuscripts. In some cases, the oldest copies we have are hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand years removed in time from when the original was written. Yet people trust them because the documents make sense. They read smoothly. We might find a mistake here or there, but it's obvious that we can fix it. Well, the New Testament record is much, much stronger. We have more manuscripts. They are older. We have so many we can compare them so that when a scribe does make a mistake, and that happens because these are handwritten, that's what the word manuscript means. And so every uh, manuscript is copied by hand letter by letter, word by word, line by line, and sometimes the eye plays tricks and a person writes the same word twice or leaves the word out or leaves an entire line out. But the scribe that does that, he's unique. Only he did that there. Others don't, and so when we compare their copies, we can see, oops, this is the guy that left out that word, but the other ten scribes didn't. And so that's how you're able to sort it out. When you have plenty of witnesses, it isn't difficult to recover the way the text originally read. The other thing is that a lot of people don't realize it, but the originals, or what we call autographs, were in existence for a long time. They were treasured, they were studied, they were copied again and again and again. And so what the apostles wrote had a deep impact on the formation of the text, In other words, you couldn't just come along 50 years later because you have new ideas, you don't like the way the Gospel of Matthew reads, or you don't care the way Paul wrote Romans, so you want to make some changes, and so you do. Well, everybody would notice because there are dozens and dozens of copies based on the original And so if somebody made a change like that because he wanted to alter the image of Jesus or change some teaching, it would stick out like a sore thumb, and he'd never get away with it. So yeah, that's a long answer, I think, to your question. But yes, there are plenty of manuscripts. They are old. They are reliable. And so when people read the New Testament today, they can read knowing that what it is they're reading is what the apostles originally wrote down.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, I got to ask this now, and and I think you you answer this in the book as well. And and if you're just uh, tuning in, we are talking to Dr. Craig Evans about Jesus and the manuscripts. And I got to ask you, why do you believe the Gospels were written for Christians?
2: Well, <clears throat> uh, it was important for uh, the new believers to receive instruction. I mean, that's something we lose sight of. <clears throat> the church has been around two thousand years, and but when the church was brand new all of these brand new believers they they you know what did they know they had heard the story that jesus was a powerful figure a son of god who had performed miracles he was raised from the dead his death on the cross paid for human sin this was good news people wanted to hear it but they didn't know anything they hadn't been raised in church so to speak they hadn't been to sunday school they didn't own a bible And so they had to be taught. And, of course, uh, when you get outside of the Jewish world, the Jewish people at least had what we call the Old Testament. They had gone to synagogue regularly for their lives. They they were monotheists. They knew there was only one God who created the world and made it beautifully. But when you have all these pagans responding to the Christian preaching and entering the church... They bring with them all kinds of baggage, polytheism, superstitions of one sort or another, weird ideas, and it was important to teach them. And so that's why the Gospels were written. That's why Paul had to write a lot of his letters. He writes to, like, the Christians at Corinth, many of them had been pagans, and had all kinds of ideas that needed to be corrected. So that's why the New Testament writings were written. Of course they were written for Christians.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, in the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, you suggest the book of Matthew enjoyed, quote, pride and place in the emerging fourfold gospel collection. Could you ferret that out for us a little bit?
2: Sure, of course. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why Matthew uh, bubbled to the top immediately and remained the most popular gospel in the church. In fact, it really still is, I think. The reason for it is it's beautifully written, number one. It's very well organized. Jesus' teaching is presented in five major blocks of material. It starts right away with an appeal to David and Abraham, so it anchors itself in Israel's ancient and venerable story. Uh, It quotes the Old Testament right and left. There are five passages, prophetic passages, cited as fulfilled in the birth and upbringing of Jesus. There are uh, several examples of how the law is fulfilled. Jesus is on the mountain, like a second Moses, giving the law and explaining what's going on. So there's a lot of things about Matthew that made it very attractive. And don't forget, when the church began, it was 100% Jewish. And that slowly began to change, especially after the Great War, 66 to 70, when the Jewish people rebelled against Rome, and unfortunately the city was captured and the temple was destroyed. And so with a very Jewish membership, Matthew was very attractive, much more so than Mark or Luke. But as the uh, Church became increasingly Gentile in its complexion, then the Gospel of Luke began to uh, be more uh, popular, too. So we can actually count the manuscripts of the three synoptic Gospels, the ones that are very close and can be seen together, which is what the word synoptic means, Of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew is the one that is by far the most popular. If we can just count the manuscripts that were found in Egypt, that's where manuscripts survive because the climate is perfect for survival. And Matthew, by far and away, has more uh, surviving copies from antiquity than either uh, Mark or Luke. In second place is John. John was very popular, but then John is a very different Gospel and portrays Jesus in various colorful, metaphorical ways, and it's a very exalted Christology. So Matthew and John are the two most popular. Matthew, by far, though, the most popular among the three Synoptic Gospels.
1: Yeah, and I think in uh, Jesus and the Manuscripts, you actually lay out all the different manuscripts we have, and you kind of chart it out pretty well. And I remember going over it with my wife and saying, wow, look at Matthew and look at the popularity. And a lot of what you're saying here, it it brings it to light in in such a way that we can totally understand it as people that are, are reading our Bible and wondering why it would have been so popular. And as you mentioned, obviously, the Jewish context it was written in. So why is there this ongoing study of the Gospel of John?
2: Well, John, John, of course, requires a lot of attention, because John just strikes us all as so different. You you know, you you have—Jesus seems about the same in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, that's not entirely true. Uh, in Jesus' presentation in Matthew, he's very concerned to fulfill the law to show how it's supposed to be understood. In Mark, uh, Jesus comes across as rival to Caesar. He's the real son of God, and it's in him that good news for the world begins. In Luke, there's a great interest in how Jesus' teaching is relevant for Gentiles and what the true meaning of election is. It doesn't boil down to genetics. It doesn't, you know, just because you're the physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean everything's okay. Uh, And So Luke is really concerned with that. But John just, John lights it up. He's just, whoa, Jesus is the eternal word made flesh, Jesus is, it's almost like an embodiment of the greatest things that happened in Israel's history in the past. When God uh, gave Israel graciously a second chance after its terrible idolatry uh, at the base of Mount Sinai, making the golden calf, uh, the Lord gave the law a second time, and he announced that he's full of grace and truth, and then that's echoed in John's Gospel. Well, that grace and truth is now made flesh, in none other than Jesus, his son. And so there's some profoundly meaningful uh, connection between John and Israel's history uh, when God revealed himself and redeemed Israel. So John's in a whole other uh, league. And of course, John fascinated uh, uh, early Christian teachers and fascinated pagans too, who saw a great deal of wisdom and beauty in the Gospel of John. And so The four Gospels together give a real nice balance uh, to the Jesus story, exploring different dimensions and aspects. And that's why the Church settled on four Gospels, not just one, and let them stand individually as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and didn't insist on them being blended together uh, as you have it in a harmony. Tatian in the second century wrote a harmony. And it was, a be- it was beautifully done, but the Church wisely said, no, we want to stick with the four Gospels individually and not blend them together.
1: Wow. You know, in Jesus and the Manuscripts, you don't just simply deal with manuscripts of Scripture. You deal with those things inside and outside of the Christian canon. So what are some of the conclusions that you have come to?
2: Well, you know, the, the first century Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones that are actually in the New Testament, uh they, they give us the, the clearest picture, the most authentic, the most realic- realistic picture of Jesus. And again, that's not theology talking. I'm not saying that because, well, they're in the Bible, so I'm obligated to say that. I'm saying that because that's what archaeologists and, and historians say, and for good reason. Uh, I, I know many archaeologists. I've been to Israel, uh, I don't know, maybe 30 times. I've volunteered dig. Uh, volunteered for some digs, archaeological digs, and so on. In fact, the guy I've worked with the most, he's Jewish and he's agnostic. He's not a Christian. He's not trying to defend the New Testament. What he does is just look for the best sources. So he's very pragmatic. Uh, He's not idealistic. He's not theologically driven. He just says, look, I, I go with whatever ancient source gives me the best guidance so I know where to dig and how to understand what I dig up. And I can understand that as a volunteer. You know, you get 50 people, 100 people to volunteer at work, uh, either <clears throat> one two-week session or maybe two two-week sessions. They pay for themselves to fly to Israel. They pay for themselves to stay in the hotel for two weeks or four weeks or whatever. They're out of pocket a few thousand dollars. You don't want to get 50 people or 100 people like that digging in the wrong place wasting two weeks, four weeks of their time and with nothing to show for it but dirt and rocks, you want to know where to dig. We literally move several tons of earth, debris, and rocks each day. I mean, that's how much skin in the game you have. And to be off on a wild goose chase, to be acting on a theory that some uh, professor at Ivory Tower is dreaming up that has no basis in reality... That's not what archaeologists do. They want to know where to dig, and they want to understand what it is they're digging up. So they use the best sources from antiquity, and there are six good sources. If you want to dig for first-century Israel, four of them are the Gospels. The fifth one is the Book of Acts. The sixth one is Josephus, the first-century historian. And Josephus and the Gospels agree often in overlapping and covering the same ground and so that's why i say you can trust the gospels because they reflect the reality of the first century the time of jesus the place of jesus but these second and third century gospels and gospel-like writings that other people wrote later like the gospel of thomas the gospel of peter the gospel of mary the gospel of philip and so on they don't reflect the first century they don't reflect Israel. They don't reflect the time and place. They lack verisimilitude, and that's why the archaeologists ignore them. It is isn't for theological reasons. They ignore these other texts because they find them of no value. They do not help in doing the archaeological work. So that's not a theological statement. That's just a, an applied practical statement based on reality and not on uh, ideals or theology or philosophy but it's based on, on the blood and the sweat of digging in the ground, and you want, to, you want to dig in the right place and know what you're doing.
1: So how accurate would the dating of these texts actually be?
2: Well, the, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Dating is always a challenge when you're talking about this kind of literature because unlike documents, what we call documentary material, documentary material has dates on it. So when you sign a contract, for example, it has a date on it. You send a letter or an email, it has a date on it. Well, same with antiquity. And so when we dig up thousands of pages of papyrus material that's documents, they all have dates. But when we find a copy of something that Aristotle wrote, a philosopher or a playwright or we find a, a piece of literature like the Bible, one of the books of the Bible or something, there is no date on it. And so we we have to compare how the handwriting looks with manuscripts that do have dates. And so it's a comparative approach. Uh, it's a field of study called paleography, which means the st- the study of old handwriting. And so we guesstimate what the dates are. So we ne- almost never have a a biblical document that has a specific date on it, and and unfortunately not from the uh, documents from way, way back in time. The other thing, too, is some of these manuscripts are not complete. Many of them are just a few pages or a few fragments. And so even if there had been a date somewhere on the document, that's gone. And so we, like the oldest fragment we have of the Gospel of Mark, it was only published three years ago, uh, it's, it's a, a piece of one page, the first page of Mark. And so we have a few parts of verses 7, 8, 9. You flip the page over the backside, we have a few parts of verses 16, 17, and 18. That's all we have. And there's no way to date that. There's no date on it. We're not going to burn some of it up and do a carbon-14. So we look at the handwriting style and match it with the known handwriting styles that we have that are dated, and it looks like it's second century, maybe late second century, may maybe even early third century. That's how we date documents and it it is challenging it is difficult. Sometimes we do carbon fourteen, but you know it's no more precise than doing paleography. It's always plus or minus fifty or sixty years. So these dates are always approximations uh, you know you might have to add a generation or you might have to subtract a generation. And that's the best we can do.
1: All right, all right. Well, I, I got to ask. You know, when it comes to non-Christian scribes or scholars, what kind of trust did they have in in the earliest of texts?
2: Well, you know, the professional scribe. Uh, you know, that's his business. If you're a scribe and you and you just keep uh, bungling in your copy work, you just miscopy it make oodles of mistakes, leave whole lines out, and so on, you're going to be out of a job. You're going to find yourself picking cucumbers instead. So if you're going to be a scribe and and you have a business, your handwriting needs to be neat, it needs to be legible, and you need to be accurate. And one of the interesting studies that was done just a few years ago in Australia examined over 500 Christian documents from antiquity. The earliest documents we have all the way back to the 2nd century. Most of these are in in the 3rd century and 4th century. But what this scholar discovered in looking at all of these documents is that they they were usually copied by a professional scribe who might not have been a Christian. Now, I think that's really good news, actually. Because if, if copies of Scripture and other uh, writings that were distinctly Christian, if those copies are being made by professional scribes who are perhaps pagans and not scribes, they're not going to have any motive, any theological motive whatsoever to make changes. Just think about that. A pagan scribe making a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, he's not thinking, oh, you know, is there a way I can improve the theology here? Is there a way I can make Jesus look better or more important or more divine that's not even going to occur to him he's just copying it almost mindlessly letter by letter word by word line by line knowing that he gets paid for how much he copies and of course his pay rate is higher if he is accurate so that's a very important feature there too and this this what this does is it challenges the idea that early scribes were all Christians, and they all had theological motives to change the text, make the cha- make the text read a little differently for some reason. Uh, I know that's been proposed. Uh, there was a book a few years ago misquoting Jesus, claiming that, but uh, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because you know something that has happened quite a bit. If you go out on the streets or you even talk with a Muslim, as you you mentioned misquoting Jesus with Dr. Bart Ehrman, when you look at that, that is what I'm hearing on the streets over and over again. That all of a sudden, it, you know, we can't really know what the Bible's saying because of these scribes, and I and I really would like a a little more on that just for maybe our audience to understand because I think maybe people don't realize that that is something that has been popularized by Bart Ehrman, who you actually have some sort of relationship with, right?
2: Yeah, I've known him uh, uh, for more than 30 years. I actually met him when he uh, regarded himself as a Christian uh, back at Princeton Seminary in the late 1980s. And, uh, I mean, I, I like Mark, we're friends, and we're civil, and cordial. and I think that's the way it ought to be, and uh, I, I hope the best for him and wish him well, but I, I do, uh, I am disappointed that he does some of these things, and misquoting Jesus is very misleading. Uh, I know there are naive people out there that think that the scribes, somehow, thanks to the Spirit of God, never make a single mistake when they copy Scripture. Well, that's naive, that's simply not true. But uh, the idea that Bart implies with his book, and misquoting Jesus, that we just don't know how the text originally read, that is way over the top and uncalled for. And for the reasons, and he knows this perfectly well, Uh, Because we do have so many manuscripts, we can make uh, comparisons, we can see that uh, the text is stable. Nobody can make a big change in the text, say in the 2nd century, early 2nd century, or late 1st century. Nobody can pull a paragraph out or, or add an extra paragraph to one of the books of the Bible and get away with it. It would leave too many ripples uh, because there are many copies and they they are spread around in regions. There's no way somebody, I mean Bart Ehrman himself, could go back in a time machine to the end of the first century and get a copy of Matthew and tr- and try to change it and get away with it. He wouldn't be able to do that. <clears throat> it's because there are other copies of Matthew floating around in different regions. It would be it would be simply impossible to track down all of the copies of of Matthew and make the same changes in all of them so that it becomes a permanent fixture so that today we have a Bible that is in fact not quite correct because somebody a long time ago made a change. It just isn't possible. And by the way, the other thing that gets overlooked is that what changes would somebody make uh... say at the beginning of the second century what even if it is a christian scribe and he has some theological commitments how does he know that the book he's copying is going to become in the bible <laughs> so there's an anachronism that runs throughout this whole idea of somebody changing things how would a scribe know especially a, one who isn't even a christian he's just a professional scribe that makes copies He's got this document in front of him. How does he know that, well, you know, this is going to become a book of the Bible someday, and so I'm going to make a change and uh, so that I can impact Christian theology for the next 2,000 years? No scribe is in a position to know that. They don't know which books are going to be in the Bible. They're not even thinking that way. No Christian in the 2nd century imagined that there would be a New Testament someday with a fixed number of books, 27 books all together, four of them are Gospels, and these are the ones they're going to be. Nobody in the second century would know that. So how, you know, what is motivating anybody to make changes to the text? The other thing, too, wh- well, even if you suspected that Matthew someday will be in the Bible, what changes are you going to be making? Uh, Are you going to make Jesus more divine or less divine? There were people that were Gnostics, by the way. They were not trying to make Jesus less divine. That's where Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code got it upside down. The Gnostic Gospels don't portray Jesus as an ordinary man who's married. Dan Brown didn't know what he was talking about. They do just the opposite. They deny the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, Jesus doesn't even have a physical body. It only looks that way. And he certainly would have no interest in romance, you know, or something like that. With me. That's ridiculous. And so the Gnostics were going in the other direction. Well, if you were a scribe in the second century, you would have no clue which way to change a gospel. You don't know what orthodoxy is going to be. How could anybody know that? How, how could they know in the year 325, that, that is the beginning of the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea is going to make certain decisions uh, regarding Christology or the doctrine of Christ? Nobody would be able to know that 200 years in advance. So that's what makes all these conspiracy theories about scribes changing the text, you know, knowing which books to change and how to change them. That's just a lot of nonsense. And so I wanted to set the record straight, and so in my book, uh, Jesus, the Manuscripts, that's one of the things I talk about. It's like, hey, let's get real and quit talking nonsense.
0: You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1 JC Truth. That's 1 866 528 7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.